All right, you can take a seat. I'm so glad. Don't you love the love it when the Lord can't resist but come and hang out with us? And I say this often, but I was just reminded last night we had some friends over and we were just remembering when we were kids, and I'm talking in my teens and 20s, which was a long time ago, nobody, nobody was worshiping the Lord. They were singing songs about him. I'm not going to say there was nobody worshiping. The Lord loves the posture of our heart, and he, it's not about form, but I'll tell you what, we're now singing to him. And our hearts are reaching toward Him, not against the walls. <clears throat> this month, uh, nationally, it's uh, Black History Month. Um, we are and have been traditionally, historically, primarily a white Anglo-Saxon church. And you know, we've we don't like tokenism and we don't like posturing and we, we want to be authentic people. And so we just, after this summer, we thought, you know what? We're, we're not going to just talk about it once. We're going to make, do something about it because we frankly not sure exactly how to do it. We're not going to shy away from all the tough questions. We're not going to shy away from all the tough searching for answers. But we did decide to come together and I was praying about a name of a group that I, as the lead pastor of this church, could say to somebody, you can always come and talk to me about this. I want the elders of this church and the leaders of this church, we're, we're, this is a priority to us. And here's why it's a priority. It's a priority to God. We're a missional church. We, we go to all the nations. In fact, we have the Bravos here who are missionaries to Mozambique. Give them a big hand. They, they're not even part of Antioch, but man, they're, they're reaching the nation of Mozambique. They've been dear friends of ours for years. And um, we're about the nations. And, and so as I was praying about, the, you know, is this a diversity group or is this the... The Lord said, I want you to call it the Revelation 7 group. And here's what Revelation 7 says. I looked again, I saw a huge crowd, too huge to count. Everyone was there, all nations and tribes and races and languages. And they were standing dressed in white robes, waving palm branches, standing before the throne and the Lamb, and heartily singing salvation to our God on His throne. And all who were standing around the throne, angels, elders, animals, they fell on their face before the throne. Just then, one of the elders addressed me, who are these dressed in white robes? Where did they come from? Taken aback, I said, oh, sir, I have no idea, but you must know. It's a rhetorical question. Then he told me, these are those who come from the great tribulation. They've washed their robes, scrubbed them clean, in the blood of the Lamb. That's why they're standing before God's throne. They serve Him day and night in His temple. 
We are assigned to love every people, every culture. We are assigned by the Lord Jesus to be a people that has no bounds or limits on those we will love and accept exactly the way they are. And not only that, delight in them. Doesn't mean we always approve of everything, but it does mean we always accept them. There was no one that ever came into Jesus' presence he did not accept fully. And so this morning, I want to introduce T.J. Johnson, who's a life group leader. Yeah! yeah. And he, he's a uh, retired Air Force officer. I don't know what rank. He went to the Air Force Academy. He's also written an amazing story, and I don't think he's probably going to share much about it, but I'll just, it's a, it's, it's a, some produ- production companies are looking to produce it, and it's about uh, two individuals, one of them named Albert Einstein, who uh, he and a, a relative, uh, I'm, I'm going to mess this story up, but the, pro- the point is, uh, it's a story about some of our history that is some of our sad history, but it's also about redemption. So, TJ, why don't you share a little bit this morning? Thank you, Steve. Tell them if you don't, we're going to take communion. And if you will raise your hand, if you didn't get any communion, while TJ's talking, the ushers will pass out uh, communion. Thank you, Steve. Hey, good morning. I'm Thomas Lee TJ Johnson. And uh, if you see Ezra and Elijah Johnson, uh, my four-year-old and my two-year-old running around, they run into you, they poke you, they pull your hair, they steal something, they, they'll give it back. Um, I apologize in advance. Uh, I have two boys who are utterly boys. Uh, I have a two-year-old, my two-year-old is already riding a bike. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> They're unstoppable. They are unstoppable. So I apologize in advance if they do anything that harms you, okay? Um, <laughs> Uh, good morning. It's so good to be with you, beloved. I mean that. It's so good to be with you. Um, pray me through this. I'm going I'm to share my story. I wasn't born Thomas Lee Johnson. I was born Leroy Hawkins. And I was born in a hospital in Springfield, Virginia, 1973. And I lived in a foster home uh, up until I was uh, five years old. And I was in a foster home run by uh, a white family that loved me, but they were unaware that one of their older sons was abusing me repeatedly. Uh, At the age of five, I was adopted by an African-American family, Thomas and Trudy Johnson, who have come to this church a couple of times, have visited. Uh, and Thomas and Trudy uh, adopted me, and, and uh, I was, because my name changed at such a young age, but I still remember my identity up until five, and then my identity switched. I've always struggled with my identity. Who am I? Why am I? 
when I was raised uh, in, in Prince George's County, <laughs> Prince George's County, Maryland, um, I was uh, in PG, you know, public schools, and if any any sign or any display of, of intelligence or appetite for learning was was looked down upon was was uh, was condemned and so my peers rejected me and when I looked to my father for my identity he said I'm your father I'm not your friend he said whatever you do is going to fail and the reason why he said that is because his businesses, he had a microfish business that failed. He owned a bar on H Street, Northeast Washington, D.C. That failed. So he was a crushed man. And because his dreams were crushed, he crushed my dreams. So I, I stuttered. As, as a little boy, I stuttered. And I was very, very shy and, and rejection and self-rejection became my identity. And in 1987, my, my parents separated for two years. And so my, my mom moved to Montgomery County, Maryland. And uh, the last day of enrollment for a new program in the state of Maryland called the International Baccalaureate Program. Had a slot and a guidance counselor came up to me and said, do you wanna try for this last slot? I said, yes. And by the grace of God, I got accepted. And so when my mom moved back to Prince George's County, I was going to high school in Montgomery County. So I would go from, I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning and go from the end of the blue line, Addison Road, to the end of the red line, Shady Grove, and then go to school. 90 minutes one way. That was my high school. And I would go from one ethnic identity on one side of Prince George's County to another completely different mentality. People who know the area know what I'm talking about in Montgomery County. And all my white peers in high school knew I was from PG County. So they rejected me. My, my family wasn't prestigious enough and I, I wasn't academically gifted enough. So they rejected me and then when I was in high school, I was in the IB program. So all the black students that were not in that program thought I was a dork, a nerd, and they rejected me. So, I was rejected on all sides. And I remember, I remember banging my head against the wall in my bedroom. I was 17. And I asked God, why did you make me? Why did you make me? Why does my father hate me? Why does my father hate me? 
did as I was praying. As I was praying. I got this scripture. Isaiah 61, 7. Instead of disgrace, you shall have honor. Instead of shame, you shall have double honor. You're worthless. You're nothing. You don't matter. It's over for you. Jesus Christ shouted, double honor. Hallelujah. Double honor. In the middle of my shame and rejection and pain, Jesus Christ filled my bedroom and changed my identity. So with 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 his newfound hope in me miraculously the students and the teachers of the of the high school I was going to elected me valedictorian of my high school class I went to the Air Force Academy I got a fellowship to work with the CIA I built spy satellites. I've traveled the world and been before presidents and prime ministers. Rulers of the world I have not been before. Mean, low men, as the psalmist says, God has given me double honor. Two days ago, this story is still unfolding. I haven't told you everything. This story is still unfolding. Three days ago, my wife was in the bedroom with me when it happened. A Hollywood actor emailed me. I won't use the names, <laughs> but he said, uh, TJ, there's somebody really important that wants you to consider producing this script. Can you send me an updated copy? Oh, and by the way, can you do this? Oh, and can you do this? Oh, Hollywood actor, excited about what God has given me. Instead of shame, instead of disgrace, you shall know double honor. And these young people here, my college friends, I know there's a whole bunch of anxiety and stress and worry that sit on your shoulders when you're trying to figure out what it is you're supposed to do. I feel you. Press your face into Christ. The... My kingdom identity is tied to 2 Corinthians 5.17. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. All rejection has passed away. All fear has passed away. My anxiety has passed away. My night terrors have passed away. My failures have passed away. My inferiority have passed away. My sense of ethnic or racial inferiority have passed away. My stuttering has passed away. 
my shyness has passed away. And behold, all things, all things, all things, all things have become new. We have no reason to be afraid. Our kingdom identity is why Revelation 7, 9 is real. For every nation, every tribe, every people and every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. We will worship forever, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every every kindred, in power and glory to the Lamb who sits on the throne. Jesus Christ said, ye shall not taste of death, except the kingdom come in power. Dunamis is the word that's used. Dunamis. The same word that we get dynamite from. Dynamite. We don't need an exegesis when dynamite blows up, do we? <laughs> we don't need to cross-reference the hominutics and the homiletics <laughs> when, when an explosion happens. <laughs> so that's my prayer for us, that the, the Lord would break out like dynamite. Please uh, take your elements. Amanda and I, my wife, my beautiful wife, Amanda, <laughs> we've had the privilege of actually being in, in, uh, in Jerusalem and Israel together. And uh, I've been to Jerusalem a few times. One of the times we actually got a chance to go to uh, uh, one of the... Um, one of the places that still that are still standing from the time of Christ, and they believe the upper room uh, may have happened. And so, being in that that chamber where Jesus Christ took the bread and he held it up, he said, "As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me." And he broke it he broke even as his body was broken he broke the chains of sin the shackles of depression he broke the shackles of rejection he broke the shackles of oppression he broke the shackles of injustice so take the bread break it and eat And he took the cup he said this is my blood which is poured out for you his blood never loses his power from that moment 
2,000 years ago to this moment now. His blood never loses its power. Take and drink. Glory. Come on, Ben. Wow. Let me pray for you, bro. Lord, I thank you so much for your presence. We have programs, but all we really desire is your presence, Lord. Lord, we want to sit around your word, continue to sit around your word, be transformed. Lord, I thank you for the anointing on our brother. Amen. Man, I, I would need that. Thank you. Oh. How, good morning, Antioch. How many of you guys love church? I mean, praise God. This is so good. Well, if you're joining us for the first time, we are really honored that you're here. We're so glad you're here, especially those who are tuning in virtually. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, for the past couple weeks, Really, at the start of this year, we be, we've been doing a series on uh, our core values. Love God, say it with me, love others, and make disciples. And for the first couple weeks, we've been focusing on responding to God, seeking first His kingdom, that, that loving God first mentality is so important. Well, for this week and, and for the next week, we are going to be unpacking that second value, loving others, loving your neighbor, Loving one another. How many of you would agree with me that this culture right now needs to learn how to love one another? In our nation. The church. We need to learn how to love one another. Jesus said in John 13, 35, the world will know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. The church's greatest apologetic is the way that we treat one another horizontally. This week, like I said, you're going to get a couple weeks so I'm going to invite you back next week. We're going to go over loving others again. But this week's going to be more big picture, more aerial view, 30,000 foot view of how do we love others. And I also want to spend this week looking at it through the lens of, of unity. You can't, or the church, we can't love well if we're not in unity. Is that right? Yeah, and they're really part of each other. If we love well, we'll be more in unity. If we're more in unity, we will love more as a church. John 17, Jesus is praying for us, the church, and he's saying, he's actually praying to the Father, he's saying, Lord, let them be one, that's us, that's you guys, as we are one so that the world will know who we are and know my love. We can all agree that the last 12 months, there has been an assault, an evil assault on unity and love. It's been heightened. It's been, it, it's, it's been charged. It's been polarized. It's been politicized. I mean, take any issue of the last 12 months, whether it's the pandemic, schools, lockdowns, masks, race riots, protests, justice, politics. It's like there's only two narratives, and you've got to be on one side or the other. And they are very much against each other. Speaking of kind of the political divide, one political commentary put it this way, 
by and large, politics is no longer about people participating in a shared project of societal order. There is very little desire to actually persuade. The strategy nowadays is to acquire enough political power to have your way. There may be more groups that are more nuanced and charitable in their language, but groups on the far right and the far left have set the tone on the ground. And sadly, this, is not, this polarization is not just in the public square, it's, it's kind of made its way to the church. We probably see it, worst of all, in, in the ethnic divide in our churches. Black churches exist in America in large part because white churches pushed them out centuries ago. In the 1980s, many whites have tried to welcome blacks back into their churches, but the message people of color often hear remains, give up your cultural preferences so I can keep mine. What are we to make of this large divide? It is no doubt the work of the enemy. Jesus even said of Satan, he said he, Satan even gets it that a house divided cannot stand. I believe, and I propose to you, that the enemy's greatest strategy, his number one strategy is to bring division to every sphere of society, churches, families, nations. The question that we have for today is how best is the church, both global, the global church, but us practically here at Antioch, how are we to navigate the divisive, rocky terrain that we live in? How can the church remain faithful to love each other and both inside our walls and outside? If we believe that Christ through the church is the hope of the world, then it's time for the church to take up its God-given destiny, right? So to answer these questions that are before us, I, I don't have a, a, a prophetic word. In fact, I what I want to share with you this morning is, is thousands of years old. It's just discerning the word of God. To be specific, I want to highlight five incredibly major Christian doctrines. The doctrine of creation, doctrine of sin, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of repentance, and the doctrine of church. There are other key doctrines so yes, this morning you're going to get a very good biblically-based theological seminary type education. Is that okay? All right? But I'm doing this because sadly in the world and even in the church, when we're looking for answers, who, who so-and-so, what's so-and-so saying? What's so-and-so, this prophetic voice or this social commentary, when in reality we just need to anchor down what, in what God has already said, the Word. So that's what we're going to do this morning. A bit of a road map. When we get to each of these key doctrines, I'll, I'll identify them in, in the scriptures. Uh, secondly, we'll briefly unpack what do they mean. And then lastly, which is really the, the, the point of all this, is to connect what God has said, his word, to what we're currently going through in this pursuit of unity, in this resistance to division. So let's begin with Christian doctrine number one. It's the doctrine of creation through what's called the image of God. In fact, there is unity. I'm speaking to the unity. We are all unified, not just the church, but all peoples have unity in this idea called the image of God. Where does that found? If you go back to Genesis 1, we've heard the story. God is, 
He's creating the world. He's speaking into galaxies and, and life here, life there. And when we get to the very last part of his creation in Genesis 1, 26, God says this, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. There's a lot of interpretations on what does the image of God mean? What does it mean that we bear God's image? But there's one implication that is really unanimous beyond theologians and scholars, and that is this, that the image of God means that all of humanity, all of humanity is endowed with value, dignity, and worth. That value was demonstrated, if you go back in Genesis 1, it was demonstrated when all the other parts of creation, God said, that is good. He gets to us and he says, that's very good. When God is creating all the other parts, he's saying, I speak, I speak, he speaks. And he's, by his words, it's becoming formed. But when he gets to us, what does he do? It says that he crafted us with his hands and then he breathed into us. Did you ever thought what the, did you ever think about what the first thought Adam or the first picture, the first thing he saw when he opened his eyes? The face of God breathing into him life. We were called to live before the face of God. And then lastly, unlike all the other parts of creation, it was Adam and Eve, it was us that when we were created, God spoke to us, meaning we are ever to live before the voice of God. How does this doctrine then relate? How does the, the, this wonderful scription, the, the scriptural doctrine of the, the image of God, how does it relate to the current focus on pursuing unity and resisting re division? If everyone has created value, worth, and dignity, that means it includes your immigrant neighbor, your black neighbor, your gay neighbor, your transgender neighbor, your Muslim neighbor your liberal or conservative neighbor. The world wants to demonize anyone it, it disagrees with. This doctrine affects how we treat people who don't share our views. In addition, if we can get a revelation as of the church of the image of God that all people are created in God's image, we will contend for the rights of the unborn. Because they have value. We will care for the weak, the sick, and the elderly. Because they're created in God's image. We will value people of every creed. We will love all peoples of all colors. Racism, racism therefore, is an absolutely inexcusable. In all attempts today or in the past to define minorities as less than human is both nothing short of false teaching and a mockery of God. I remember a story from a good friend of mine from Antioch, Waco, Texas, our, our church over there, and he was a disciple maker, and he was doing a Bible study with a young guy who, who didn't know Jesus, but this guy was willing to do a Bible study on Genesis 1, this, this exact same passage we're looking at. And he asked this, this, this unbeliever, he said, hey, we've read it, what takeaways do you have from this passage? And this, this guy who's not a Christian, he says, I, 
I, I no longer want to pay for sex. And the disciple maker, I can imagine him, he's like flipping through his Bibles, going, where did you get that? <laughs> and the guy said, the guy, he asked the guy, well, where, where, where'd you pull that from? He said, all peoples, man and woman, are created in the image of God. When we get that revelation, it changes the way that we love people and look at people, amen? When there's unity, when we understand that there's unity in our creation through the image of God. The second doctrine is the doctrine of total depravity. Just as we are unified and that we're all made in the image of God, we're also unified and that we're all, we're all, we're all sinners. This comes from Genesis 3. You, you guys remember the story, right? The serpent comes in. He deceives Adam and Eve, and they commit this cosmic rebellion. And from that point forward, sin enters the complete entire human race. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We are all born sinners. The Bible talks about the flesh, and that's not the, the physical part, but the flesh is that inward propensity to sin against God. Parents, we, we see this, right? We don't have to teach our children to be selfish. In fact, we got to teach them to be loving because they, it's, 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 part of, it's, it's part of what they were born with. We're all born with this. Romans 3.23, put it this way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if this is the doctrine of sin, total depravity, what are its effects upon humanity? Number one, it's relational. Our sin disconnects us from, from God and each other. Number two, it's, there's a social upheaval. Number three, there's a covenantal rebellion. Because of sin, we're, we, have now, we, we, we were born in this allegiance, not to God, but to Satan. Romans 6 says that we are slaves to whom we obey. There's, fourthly, there's a legal transgression. Our standing before God is one of condemned punishment. Fifth, there's a ritual impurity. We're defiled, we're unclean. Sixth, there's emotional pain of shame, disgrace, and fear. And lastly, we're helpless. There's no amount of good deeds that can rescue us. If that's the doctrine of sin, how does that relate to our current context, our current pursuit of unity how does that relate to us resisting division let me give you a couple ways it does number one when i recognize when we recognize our own sin and brokenness do you know what it guards us against it guards us against self-righteousness and judgmentalism i have no right to pick up a stone and accuse and to condemn anyone we're all guilty derek chauvin tell me if you remember that name the, the police officer who brutally murdered George Floyd, the, the sin in his heart resulted in that murderous action. But guess what, folks? The same disease that he has, the same disease that Derek Chauvin has, I have. We were all born with that. Secondly, recognizing my own depravity protects me against defensiveness and pride. Knowing my sinful past and the depths of which God saved me, I have no reason to be defensive. When I underestimate my own proclivity to sin, my own proclivity to, to think selfishly, I'm actually less able to hear opposing views or even criticism 
This past year was a, was a hard year for, for pastors in particular. Uh, they were being given so much feedback, and at times, at worst, it was criticism. We experienced that, our pastoral staff. We were called racists in so many words. But, and it was real easy to hear those comments that were made public about us, to want to get defensive, to want to say, no, 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 I know I, I, know I haven't done anything wrong. Instead of taking a step back and saying, Lord, if there's a word on my mouth or a meditation of my heart that's not pleasing and acceptable to you, Lord, I confess it. Thirdly, when we understand the doctrine of total depravity and that sin is the issue, that, that's actually the disease that's causing all of what we're experiencing, then we're actually one, we're, 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 we're one step closer to the prognosis. More education, better legislation, better psychology, as, as good as those things are, that's not going to solve what we're going up against. And that brings me to doctrine number three. It's the doctrine of salvation. And there's unity here. We are unified in our need for the gospel. If the former one was correct, which it is, we're all sinners, then this is also true. The greatest news the world has, has ever heard is that God came into this broken world and saved us. Where is this found in Scripture? John 3.16. Repeat after me. For God so loved the world, His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Amen? Let me read a couple other ones. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Lastly, Romans 1.16. Paul writes to the church at Rome, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We all we all share this unified need for the gospel. How does this relate then to our current crisis, our current pursuit of unity, and our current resistance towards division? For starters, we can rally together around the only hope, that's Jesus. Christians can stop lifting up politicians or nationalistic viewpoints as the hope. I've been in, how many of you have been in conversations this year? And they're not necessarily bad conversations. They're people, conversations you've had with like-minded people about the state of affairs. And I've found that when I've been in conversations, and it, let's say they're exclusively about, hey, let's try to fix the economy and, and politics and education, and I found that if it's exclusively about the temporal and, and fixing that part of society, like I walk away and I'm going, man, I, I don't see any hope here. I get a little depressed. It's that bad. In fact, it's a gospel revolution or bust for America. There's one hope for America and his name is Jesus. We have to stop forming allegiances around the stripes and colors of our political cultural viewpoints and instead on the stripes and scars of Jesus. Yeah. The verse we just read, Romans 1.16, 
says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Notice it, notice this, for it is the power of God. The gospel doesn't just contain power, it is the power. The church must be unified in this one hope, the gospel. There's a fourth way that we're unified, and it's the fourth doctrine, and that's the doctrine of repentance. We're all unified in this one response. The call to repentance is shared among all of us. If we are to receive this gospel, which is meant for all, then we must all repent. Let me read some scriptures where this doctrine is found. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A few chapters later, or in chapter 4, 417 of Matthew, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then here we have Peter in Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The first step in responding for all of us, for everyone, is repentance. Now, the literal definition, I'll give you a literal definition and then I want to give you a corporate one that's often overlooked. The literal one is, is that there is a 180... Transformation, changing of our mind, our words, and our actions to now go towards God. That's, that's the literal definition of repentance. We've talked and preached about that a lot. But here's, here's a corporate, contextual, significant meaning of repentance that's often overlooked. Keep in mind that when the Jews heard this, they were under Roman governance. When they heard the words, repent, for the kingdom of God is at near, they were hearing there's a new empire that's coming, a new ruler, a king of kings, no longer pledge allegiance to the systems of this world, this government, this education, sever all allegiances. That word repent was politically charged. You see that? There was a a politically charged meaning there. If you want to enter this kingdom, you must forsake all heart ties, all other idols. This gospel was what I'll call transcendently political. It's transcendent politics. So how does this understanding of the need for unified repentance, how does that apply to us moving forward in unity and resisting division? It means that every ideological allegiance must bow to the Lordship of Jesus. A unified church will not pledge a loyalty to Republicans or conservatives or Democrats or liberals, but will repent and follow Jesus. A unified church will not pledge loyalty to the world's way of justice, but they will repent and follow Jesus. A unified church will not pledge loyalty to the world's way of sexuality, No, they will repent and follow Jesus. I love the story of Joshua. It illustrates this brilliantly. If you go to Joshua 5, we're going to put it up here. Here is an Old Testament example of what we're talking about here in terms of repentance. If you recall, Joshua is now the new leader of Israel. He's just passed over Moses, and he's taken the Israelites into the promised land, And they're encountering their first enemy, Jericho, the walls of Jericho. We we love that story, right? And Joshua, he's approaching Jericho, and he's thinking, I'm the good guy, they're the bad guys. We're right, they're wrong. Sound familiar? 
Notice what it says, verse 13. When Joshua was, was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I actually find this a bit funny when, when, when Joshua, he's, he's coming up to this, this dude with a sword. And again, he's got, Joshua's got his ide, ideological viewpoints. In fact, Joshua was right. Jericho was wrong. Joshua and the Israelites, they were the good guys, and Jericho were the bad guys. So, but yet, regardless of the facts, what does the angel say? And this is where I find it funny. The angel doesn't even answer their question, really. He just says, no. You get it? Whose side are you on? No. But it gets better. The angel says, but I am. As if to say, Joshua, it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe or who they are or what they believe. Now I'm going to make a point in just a second, and I'm going to use very hyperbolic language. So I'm going to make a preface first. Here's my preface. God loves you. (laughs) You're special. You're royalty. He cares about what you think about. It's those thoughts that you have are important. That's my preface. Here we go. But God is the king. He is sovereign. Your ideas on how to fix and run the society don't matter anyway because they're often self-serving. Church leaders and so-called prophets and social media warriors sometimes just need to shut up and do what Joshua did and get on his face before God. And notice what Joshua had to do. He had to take off his shoes. He had to leave his convictions behind. He had to leave his ideologies. He had to leave his politics behind if he wanted to get in the presence of the Lord. This is repentance. We all share this unified response to the gospel in this way. This is the way. Star Wars reference. Okay. (laughs) One last doctrine that talks about our unity, and that is the doctrine of, of it's, it's a doctrine of the church. And it's, we are unified via our baptism into the church, church membership. Now, I know that's a little confusing, so let me explain it. 1 Corinthians 12, um, here's a verse that often doesn't get referenced when we talk about water baptism. A lot of us understand water baptism in one way, I'm gonna, but I'm going to read the scripture and then break it down for us. Verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. We, we get the, and part of this is being individualistic society, Western, we understand the individual need for water baptism and what that does. 
the, the cleansing of our sins as we go in the water, as we come out of the water, we're being raised to new life. And that's all true. It's found in Romans 6. But there's a corporate power that's applied when we get water baptized. We are brought into a new community, a new group called the church. And the word Greek, the word for church there in the Greek is ekklesia, meaning we've been called out of our former identities, our former political identities, and we've been transferred into the, a new kingdom. Regardless of your former identity, race, ethnicity, social status, we now have a new membership into the body of Christ. Now, how does this doctrine of the church, this transcendent identity as members of, of a new group, how does this apply to our pursuit of unity and our resistance to division? And I'll preface what I'm about to say with, I'm, I'm going to propose a new perspective and relationship between politics and Christianity. What if the local church, what if Antioch became your greatest corporate political identity? Now, just listen. Not Republicans, not Democrats. I'm not saying you, you abandon your preferences. But what I am saying is that all of that must yield to a corporate identity. It's the church, isn't it? that's supposed to tutor one another on righteousness and justice. Don't we as a church preach every Sunday a political sermon when we say things like, to observe all that the king with all authority in heaven and earth has commanded? That's political. I'm proposing that we switch our primary political loyalties from our parties to our local churches. We stop letting parties determine our political agenda. Now, I understand that sounds idealistic. It sounds good. Oh, wow, it's good. But w let's bring it down to practicality here. I'm going to quote a, another political theologian, Jonathan Lehman. He, he puts it like this. He gets really practical here. And he's talking about the church becoming political. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church who are ethnically or nationally different from you? Do you practice hospitality at all? You who vote for family values, do you honor your parents and love your spouse self-sacrificially? You who speak against abortion, do you also embrace and assist the single mothers in your church? Do you encourage adoption? Do you prioritize your own children over financial comfort? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy in your congregation? You who proclaim that all lives matter, do all your friends look like you? You who lament structural injustices, do you work against them in your own congregation? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? You who fight for traditional marriage, do you love your wife? Do you cherish her as you would your own body, washing her with the water of the word? You who would be concerned about the economy and the job market, do you obey your boss with a sincere heart? Not as a people pleaser, but as you would obey Christ. And finally, as you share your opinions about all these issues on social media, do you gladly share the Lord's Supper with the church member who disagrees? Do you pray for his or her spiritual good? And lastly, he says, he's proposing that the local church 
should strive first to live out justice and righteousness and love in its own life together here, and then we can commend the world in our understanding of justice and righteousness. The great, he ends by saying, the greatest of our political hopes comes to life in the, the congregation. The local church should be the model community for the world. It wasn't Christ through... Wow, I got a... Oh, it's 12. Okay. It wasn't Christ through Donald Trump, the hope of the world. It's not Christ through Joe Biden, the hope of the world. It's not Christ through Democrats or Republicans, the hope of the world. It's not Christ through America, the hope of the world. It's not Christ through white people. It's not Christ through black people, the hope of the world. It's Christ through the church, the hope of the world. Amen? Let's recap. We share a unity in our creation via the image of God. We share a unity in our depravity. We're helpless without him. We share a unity in our need for the gospel, salvation. We share a unity in a response called repentance. And we share a unity in our church through baptism. And when we begin to understand how our unity is applied across all these facets of our faith, we can actually begin to look a little bit more like Revelation Seven. That's actually the unity. There's a unity there of our hope. I'm going to make. A, I'm going to invite our, our worship team to come up, and I have a couple invitations for us this morning. There's an invitation this morning. I made it real clear on what it means to receive the gospel, salvation from our sins, repentance. If you've never done that then there's an invitation for you to come to the front this morning and give your life to Jesus. But I imagine for a lot of us, we've been following Jesus for quite some time, and there could be an issue of our heart that's unpleasing to the Lord. It could be a prejudice against a people group. It could be an allegiance that you hold to a party or an agenda that is actually higher than Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I want you to surrender it to the Lord by coming up this morning. And then lastly, if you need prayer for anything, we want to pray for you this morning. I'm going to invite all of you to stand. I'm going to invite our elders and, and life group leaders to front to come and pray. Jesus, you've given us a calling through your anointing to be the hope of the world. And in order for us to do that, we have to be unified. We have to be unified in you as you are one, Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we welcome to come and wash over our hearts, wash over our minds. And Lord, if there's anything this morning in our hearts that is not pleasing to you, Lord, we want to lay it down. Jesus, you are, you are really the hope of the world. We thank you, God. I just want to invite you to come to the front this morning if you need prayer for anything.